ask you to open your Bibles to Psalm 101, 101st Psalm. Our study of the Psalms is drawing to a close in, in a few short weeks. God willing, we should begin a study of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, I mean Ephesians. Um, but I would have you one more time turn to the Psalms, to the 101st Psalm, Psalm 101. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text to the psalm on the back of the insert. Um, let's, let's read Psalm 101. <clears throat> a psalm of David. I will sing of the steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Lord God, as we... Study this psalm. I pray that you give us eyes to see, that we would behold your glory in your word, that we would see the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be changed. Help us to look at this royal psalm of kingship and rule, of a king's resolve, and change us by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Title this morning's message, A King's Resolve. This is one of only two psalms in the fourth book of the Psalms, the fourth division, that has Davidic authorship given to it. This psalm and Psalm 103, just two one over, um, are the only psalms in, in the fourth book given Davidic authorship. And the authorship here helps make clear the purpose. We've just ended a section of Psalms, Psalm 93 to 100, that focus on the Lord as king. They're sometimes known as the Yahweh Melech Psalms. The Lord rules, the Lord is king. We saw that clearly um, in these Psalms as we've looked through 70, 97, 98. Look at how 99 begins. The Lord reigns. That's the unifying theme of this block. The Lord God rules and reigns. In this Psalm, in Psalm 101, Israel's king, David, responds to that. And he responds to that through a series of resolutions. Ten times in ESV, I will, is said. Notice it in the text. I will sing, verse 1. I will make music, verse 2. I will ponder. I will walk, verse 3. I will not set before my eyes, verse 4. I will know nothing, verse 5. I will destroy, verse 5. I will not endure, verse 6. I will look with favor, Verse 8, I will destroy. So David is making resolutions, commitments, promises 
of how he will reign, I believe, in response to the focus on God's reign. So from Psalms 93 to 100, there's been a focus on the Lord God as king and ruler. And then the compiler of the Psalms places Psalm 101 here, showing the the king of Israel's response. Now that may raise some questions in your mind, as you're not likely to be the king of a theocratic nation anytime soon. Right? And she might think, well, this is a great psalm for David to sing. This is a great poem for David to memorize. These are great promises for David to make. What use are they to me? Well, consider that this did not stay in David's personal collection. I believe it entirely likely that there are many songs David wrote that are not in the book of Psalms. But by being included in the book of Psalms, they're included in Israel's corporate worship. In fact, the ESV Study Bible has this note about um, Psalm 101. The psalm sets out for David and his heirs the ideal kind of ruler that they should aim to be. The people who sing this will find their desires for their king shaped by it and will receive guidance for their prayers for the ruling king. The psalm's eyes is the Davidic king in whom the people are included and therefore, along with, and therefore, along with whom they sing, the king's task is the devotion to achieving covenant faithfulness. Christians sing this, rejoicing that they have in Jesus the perfect embodiment of the Davidic ideal. So let me let me think of three ways you can read this psalm that are valid, um, that we can that can be useful for us as we're not a Davidic king. One. We can see from this the ideal of human rule. First, for Israel, their kings, and even for us now as we size up those we would cast our votes for. Here we have an an ideal, idealized representation of what a righteous and just human ruler looks like in response to God's perfect and just rule. And the people in singing this are being reminded and reminding the king... This, this is your Magna Carta. This is your commitment. This is what a king and ruler is called to do. Now, David fails in many respects. In many respects, he, he bears some of this good fruit, and yet we know with Bathsheba and other instances, he, he does not fulfill this perfectly. I mean, as simple as, look at verse 3, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Is precisely because he stayed back at the time when kings go to war, And he set his eyes on Bathsheba bathing, that all of that trouble that ultimately leads to an insurrection and a revolt and a coup and a civil war took place. No, David does not, as as good as his intentions are, as, as right as his instincts are, as good and right as these commitments are, he he fails to achieve them. Um but there is a king who's coming. There is a king who is even now anointed king, who will fulfill this perfectly. The Lord Jesus Christ will return. The Lord Jesus Christ will set up a kingdom. And David's greater son will fulfill this perfectly. So on the one hand, the first suggestion of reading this, we see what Israel's kings were supposed to do. We see even by extension what a good and just ruler should do. Secondly, we, we with hope, look towards the coming of King Jesus, who will perfectly do this. As we see these values and these good things, we we can rejoice knowing a king is coming who will do them. And third, 
I would suggest we can get from this psalm. To whatever degree you have an area of rule, if you're parents, if you're a husband, if you have any authority in your work or your position, to whatever degree you are a king, you are a ruler, you have a domain, you and I then can learn from this psalm the principles of just and righteous rule. So, so three Three ways of looking at this. And as we go through the psalm, we'll be shifting through those. First, what is Israel's king supposed to do? What is Israel's um, human king supposed to aim at? What should human rulers do? What's their ideal? Second, Jesus' coming rule that will perfectly fulfill this. And third, to whatever degree you and I are kings, to whatever degree you and I rule and have dominion, these principles, this, these commitments should be our commitments as well. So a king's Resolve. Now, the psalm breaks nicely in half into two chunks. Now, you're blank, so I'll give you both of them right now. David pledges faithfulness within his house. Look at verse 2. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. And the first four verses are focused pretty exclusively on David's commitment to personal holiness. We're going to get to David's administration and rule. We're going to get to what he does with the wicked and the lawless. But first, David has a series of resolves for his own faithfulness, his own holiness, his own adherence to the covenant. And that's what the first four verses focus on. David pledges faithfulness within his house. Second, David pledges righteousness within his land. Because that phrase, in the land, shows up twice in the second section of the psalm. Look at verse 6. I'll look with favor on the faithful in the land. And for an Israelite, the land is a very clear, specific reference to the promised land of Israel. No, no confusion. That same phrase shows up again in verse 8. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land. Now, yes, verse 7 contains, in my house... Well, David's household is still within the land, but he, the point is, the first four vote verses focuses on David's own personal life conduct, his walk, his heart, his relationship with God. And then in the second half of the psalm, it broadens to his rule, to his administration. Okay? So those are your blanks. David pledges faithfulness within his house. David pledges righteousness within his land. And so we're going to look at the first four verses. And within them, there's a split as well. The first set of resolutions, the first three I wills, are positive. In the blank here, his resolutions, verse 1 through 2. And in verses 3 and 4, we see three um, negative resolutions, what I will call his repudiations. To repudiate something is to distance yourself from it, to renounce it. So his resolutions, his repudiations. Let's just read the first four verses, and I think you'll even see just in reading it. I will sing of the steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Okay, so these are David's personal resolutions and repudiations. And we're just going to go through them, all six of them. First, David commits, I will sing. I will sing. And this is an important note. David's rule, David's commitment to rule, flows out of his delight 
his joy, his passion, his enthusiasm for God's rule. Because he says, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. I will sing a singing of the character of God. These are the very attributes listed in the previous section. Our God is a God full of steadfast love, and his rule is full of righteousness, right? He comes to judge the earth in faithfulness and in righteousness. David, his heart is soaring, looking at these things as he considers God's rule, God's administration, and so he's going to sing. And so all of David's commitments to rule, then, I think, flow out of imitate, model, the perfect rule of God. These are not just good ideas that came to him. Rather, it's his response in worship to God's rule. And again, that's what we see in the Lord Jesus, isn't it? He says in John 5, I do nothing of my own authority, but only what the Father sees I do. Jesus' coming rule will be in response to what he sees his Father doing. And likewise, husbands, fathers, mothers, managers... Overseers in the workplace, your rule, first and foremost, should be in response to the living God and for his glory. Not as man-pleasers, not as pragmatists, but as servants of the living God. Um, So any approach to authority has to come starting with a delight in who God is. I will sing, he says, of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. Being delighted in God's administration, finding joy in his coming kingdom. I mean, that was, the, that was the chorus of these psalms we've just seen. He comes, he comes to judge the earth in righteousness. And David is ecstatic and full of joy contemplating that reality. And of course, steadfast love and justice are what should, um, what should mark any right administration. It's not Hosea, Micah 6, 8 He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Likewise, Peter instructs us that what is the function of human government? He tells us in 1 Peter 2, 13 to 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And that's what this psalm is filled with. David's going to punish those who do evil, and he is, in verse 6, going to look with favor on those faithful in the land. He's going, to, he's going to reward the good. He's going to punish the evil. I will sing the Lord's reign is his delight. That also means David's reign is not put up against alongside of her in competition to the Lord's. It's, it's subservient. His reign is under the authority of the Lord's reign. His reign, in one sense, is is an act of worship as he responds to God's reign. I will sing, second, of a righteous king or ruler. I will ponder, I will ponder. The Lord's law is his guide. So he begins by looking at God's steadfast love and God's justice, and his heart overflows in worship. And then rather, okay, I'll go figure that out myself, If he wants to imitate that, what does he need? He needs God's word. He's going to meditate and ponder on the path, the way that is blameless. Now, that's a reference in that phrase, the way that is blameless, is a reference normally and regularly used of Scripture. Listen to the way Psalm 119.1 begins. Psalm 119.1, 
Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. The book of Deuteronomy prescribes of Israel's kings. Long before Israel had a king, the book of Deuteronomy says when you do have a king, he had to have a handwritten copy of the law of Moses inspected by the Levites. That was his daily Bible reading Bible. That's the importance God's word and God's law has for the kings of Israel. And so again, if you're going to rule, if you're going to exercise authority, you're going to need to immerse yourself in God's word. The Lord Jesus gave himself to the study of God's word. We saw that in our study of Luke, didn't we? That even as a 12-year-old, he's in the temple studying, studying, studying. And by the time he shows up in John's baptism, he is a master of the word of God, reasoning from it, arguing from it, basing his responses on it. Even the perfect, sinless Lord Jesus studies God's word that he might live it out in his rule. And so again, parents, husbands, managers, overseers at work, be in God's word that you might learn how you might rule and exercise authority righteously. Begins with a delight in God's rule, worship, joy, singing at God's administration. Second, then conjuring God's word. How can we learn how to be righteous and just? How can we learn how to lead and rule God's word, we ponder the way that is blameless. By the way, that phrase, the way that is blameless, will show up again in verse 6. We'll get to that. I will ponder. The Lord's law is his guide. So watch the movement. First, I'm looking at God, and I'm loving what I'm seeing. And then I want to imitate it. So I'm studying his word so that I can see it and find his precepts and his judgments. And then the next movement is, is still not to rule. It's still not to anything outside of David, it's to putting it into practice. I will walk, he says, with integrity of heart within my house. I will walk. So the movement, you're looking at God, you're, you're delighted in what you see, you're, your heart's overflowing with joy and passion at who he is and how he rules. You're, you're in his word, you're studying it, you're pondering it so that you might learn how you can imitate that, how you can put his precepts into practice. And then, before you're ever telling anybody what to do, before you're ever calling on anyone to do anything, you're doing it yourself. That's what David says he wants to do. He gets That holiness first has to begin in his own heart, and his own walk, before he can do any sort of righteous rule. I will walk. Personal faithfulness is his goal. Um, Turn to Ezra, book of Ezra, chapter 7. We we get this um, this movement um, perfectly illustrated in, in Ezra, the returning exiles from Babylon, And Ezra, he's going to lead the people to some extent. And in Ezra, chapter 7, it's a great, great principle here. For Ezra, verse 10, Ezra 7, 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and rules in Israel. Notice that progression. The temptation for us is to skip over or deal very lightly with those first two. We like authority. We like telling people what to do. But first, studying God's word. Second, applying God's word. Third, teaching statutes and principles. And 
I know I've told this story before, but it's been a while, so bear with me. Um, I remember being at the Shepherd's Conference, Grace Community Church. John MacArthur had one of his favorite preachers present, Eric Alexander, who's got a deep, rich Scottish brogue. Yes, Daniel, I'm telling that story. I'm sorry. He's telling me no. And he went to this very verse, and he was exhorting young pastors, or old pastors, I suppose, and about the importance of practicing what you preach. I mean, think about who was Jesus most angry with? It was hypocrites. There's a reason why the qualifications for leadership in the church, the overwhelming majority of them are in personal holiness. Yes, they must be able to teach. Yes, they must be able to refute those who contradict. But the rest of the list is, are they hospitable? Are they kind? Are they gentle? Are they good husbands? Are they good fathers? Do they run their household? Are they quarrelsome? Are they drunkards? Are they... Because the men who would lead in the church need to first practice what they're going to preach. And Ezra gets that, and Eric Alexander um, uses this illustration, which now, probably 15 years on, still sticks with me, and as I keep repeating it to you, it'll stick with you. But he, 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 he leans out over the pulpit, and he says, Everyone knows that the ad man says that such and such a soda tastes so great. But what they really want to know at the end of the day is does he drink his own soda? When he's home, does he drink his own soda? That's a fair question. The things that you hear me preaching, do am I trying to apply them? And so again, parents, before you call on your children to do things, are you practicing them? Husbands, before you call on your wives, are you practicing what you would commend to others? Managers, employers, are you practicing the very things you're calling on your employees, the diligence, the faithfulness? David understands that first he needs to be delighted, captivated by, enthralled by God's rule and his righteous kingdom. Second, he needs to focus on God's word. He's not going to be able to figure this out on his own. He needs God's instructions. And third, he's going to then walk and practice that so that his way is blameless. And notice at the end of verse two, he understands he's going to need help from God to do this. That This sort of exhortation that comes out, oh, when will you come to me? There's no mistake on David's part that he thinks he can do this on his own. He needs God's presence. He needs God's help as he considers this reading of God's word and this putting into practice what he reads. He knows he needs God's help, and he just cries out, when will you come to me? When will you come to me? These are the starting points for leadership. These are the starting points for rule. These are the types of things you should be looking at, personal integrity for those you might cast your vote for. These are the marks of a righteous ruler. And when the Lord Jesus comes, these are the marks that he will perfectly embody. Okay, let's move on to David's repudiations. His repudiations, verses three through four. First, I will not look upon a worthless thing. I will not look upon a worthless thing. Some translations say vile. Um, I will not look, set before my eyes, anything that is worthless. Now, by the way, notice in this psalm that focus on, on what your eyes rest upon. There's a commitment. I'm not going to set before my eyes anything that's worthless. But verse 6, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land. Verse 7, no one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. And David gets that what he sets his gaze upon, what he's looking at intently, 
That's going to shape him. It's precisely because he goes up on his roof and he gazes down at Bathsheba taking her bath that all of that trouble and adultery and murder and civil war follow. Um, one of the things we're going to see here is David understands you can't play around with evil and wickedness. You, you can't do that and not be unstained. Um, and so I, I'd ask you, like, what do you watch on TV? What types of movies do you rent? What types of books do you read? What types of music do you listen to? What, what types of things do you set before your eyes and your mind? David understands. He, part, if he's going to prepare to lead and rule well, what he is taking in with his eyes matters. I think most immediately in the context, it's connected with the next point, the work of the apostates. I will not look upon anything that is worthless. And by, and by the way, that also imitates God. Listen to Habakkuk 1.13. You, O Lord, are of purer eyes and can see evil and cannot look at wrong. So again, even in this, he's imitating the Lord God. Evil should offend us. It's not enough to be able, because I'll talk to people that say, well, I watched that, but I know that that's wrong, and I know that that's right. That's not enough. It should offend you. It should bother you. Our loyalty to what is right and good should cause us to be grieved and offended and we see what is wrong. I hate the work of those who fall away. Next, I hate the work of of those who follow. And we saw this two weeks ago that loving something necessarily demands hating something. It's the corollary. If you love your children, how do you regard and deal with and feel about that which threatens your children? Neutral? I recognize that dog is a threat. No, I, I'm going to attack it. If that dog comes near my kids, I'm going to throw myself. I'm going, well, I can, I can recognize that that poses a threat. No, it's visceral. Those are my children. Get away. I hate those, he says, I hate those, the work of those who fall away shall not cling to me. Because he loves God's steadfast love and he loves God's justice, because he wants to first act it out in his own life and then administer it in his rule, he feels very strongly about those who fall away. And I think the picture is, and we'll see this in the rest of the psalm, is David is considering his his, his administration, his retinue, his entourage, his advisors. We're going to see that. Who's going to continue before him? Who's not going to continue before him? Who's going to abide in his house? Who's not going to abide in his house? Because David is very well aware of how Saul's advisors and retinue twisted things. One of the things my men's group is going through the Psalms, and one of the things that's interesting is there are many Psalms whose Psalm titles indicate they're written by David in those years where he is fleeing from Saul, or he's hiding out from Saul. You know what you never see in those Psalms? David personally crying out against Saul. He's the Lord's anointed. He won't raise his hand against him. But what does David cry out against? The plotting, slandering, lying people around Saul who are stirring up trouble, who are falsely accusing him. David's got a lot of things to say about them. And so one of the things I think David has in mind here is, I am not going to surround myself with those people. I am not going to have those type of people near me. The work of those who, who fall away and are faithless, it's not coming near me. It's not going to stick to me. Now, yes, personally, that's true as well, who, who we're friends with, who we spend time with. But, but David is, is hating 
He is staying away from, he doesn't even want to get stained. He doesn't want any of it on him, the work of those who fall away. And again, we have in view here the would-be people of God. We have in view here not Philistines and Canaanites, but people who would claim some level of fidelity to the Lord. And you remember even from our study of Luke, the Lord Jesus speaking about um, the soil that that took seed, the rocky soil, the, the thorny soil. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And so we know people who for a time have professed faith. We know people who for a time have, have confessed faithfulness to the Lord and, and fall away. I mean, if you're at all familiar with would-be Christian celebrities, there's been a couple notable ones recently who've precisely done that. I'm no longer a Christian. I'm, they've fallen away. And, and David is distancing himself from them and from their works. He's going to be faithful. He's not going to be partners with those who fall away from God. And this is a warning scripture gives to us. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest any of you, there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. One of the ways you guard yourself from that is you stay away from those who are doing that very thing. I hate the work of those who fall away. And finally, I will know nothing of evil. I will know nothing of evil. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. And again, you keep yourself pure, not by gawking right up to the edge, as close as you can to evil and peering over. I'm on this side of the line, folks. No danger here. You keep yourself pure by staying back. David commits himself. He will ponder the way that's blameless. He will put his mind in God's word. He won't set his eyes on worthless things. And he is not going to learn about evil. You get an idea of where his heart, where his thoughts, where his sight is directed. And that's, that's David's personal commitment. It's very similar, in fact, to the, what we see in Psalm 1. How does the book of Psalms open? Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor listens to their podcasts, nor, sorry, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You see, you see the constancy here in Scripture? The Apostle Paul in, in, first, in, Hebrew, in 1 Corinthians 14 tells the Corinthians, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Um, we, we don't need to understand every nuance and nook and cranny of evil. We, we can know the truth, and that'll, that'll do. That'll do. So those, those are David's pledges for his own conduct. Um, and I think you can see clearly how the Lord Jesus, in his reign and his rule, even now, perfectly embodies that. He, he's not um, studying up on evil. But he's, he's memorized the word of God. He speaks God's word. He imitates what he sees his father doing. Which means then for us, that's our call. Before we get to how you actually administer a rule before you get to how you actually um, oversee. This is the standard. This is the call to to delight in who God is and what He does. To study His Word. To with His assistance, with His help, put it into practice. To distance yourself from evil. To be careful what you look at. To keep your heart from falling away. Walk with integrity of heart. 
And that, that integrity of heart in verse 2 is contrasted in verse 5 with an arrogant heart. And this is holistic. Eyes, heart, feet. He's walking. He's looking. He's dwelling. He's not being stained. These are the marks. This is the Magna Carta for leadership. To whatever degree God has given you a sphere of authority, to whatever degree God has given you an area of rule, start with yourself. 1 Peter 4.17 says this, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Or as Jesus says, get the log out of your eye first before you find the speck in your brothers. David gets that. So David pledges faithfulness within his house. Okay, now let's go beyond David's house as David pledges righteousness within his land. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. So first, David commits, I will destroy slanderers and the proud. I will destroy slanderers and the proud. And that's why it's important to focus that this is on rule. You don't have the authority to deal with all slanderers and proud people. David is king in Israel, does but within your home, within your household, you do. Parents, what are you going to do with your children? And there are slanderous tongues. When they, so-and-so did this. I mean, I got, I won't name the child, but I have a child who likes to tell me what other children are doing. Um, and righteous rulers deal with that. Righteous rulers deal with that. Now, as David in his situation as a king, he's, he's cutting them down. I think also the important thing to get here is the focus on who is dwelling in his house, who his servants will be. Because that's the contrast in verse 6. I will look on favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. I think less in view is David thinking, if there's some Israelite in some far-out town who says something about his neighbor, I'm going to show up and cut him down. I think rather... What he primarily has in view is within his retinue, within his court, within his advisors. Turn, turn back to Psalm 52. It's a good example of this. You remember um, when David fled Saul, he went to the priests at Nob and Ahimelech, and he was given the, the bread of the presence and Goliath's sword. Then he fled to Achish. There was a, um, the head of Saul's herdsman was there. His name was Doeg, the Edomite. And Doeg returns to Saul, and does not immediately report to Saul what David did. But he waits, presumably, to manipulate Saul, presumably to find a time when the news will most agitate Saul, send him off as we see Saul is so unstable, going back and forth from, okay, David, you're good, to I'm going to kill him. And David writes Psalm 52, look at the title, the choir master, a maskeel of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Abimelech. Again, notice he's not, he's not railing against Saul, even though Saul's the one who orders the priests be killed. 
And even though Doeg the Edomite has the gall to commit this high-handed sin that even Saul's soldiers won't do. The soldiers are like, we are not touching the priest, Saul. Doeg's like, I got it. But that's not what David focuses in on. If you remember years back when we studied Psalm 52, we dealt with why does David not condemn Doeg for the, the, the arrogance of striking down the priests at Nob because he's getting at the root. What's the real root? Look at verses 1 and 2. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of the Lord endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you work her of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Now, the psalm title and the focus of the psalm is, where did this begin? What, what event began? And what, what event began that ended with the slaughter of all but one of the priests at Nob? It was one of David's counselors, it was one of David's inner circle, whispering, slandering, sowing doubt. That's, that's what it was. That's what Psalm 52 focuses on. David zeroes in on that moment when Doeg told Saul. And here, David is saying, those type of people, nope. They're not going to be part of my court. They're not going to be part of my retinue. Where I find them, I'm going to oppose them. I'm going to destroy them. I think first and foremost within that inner circle, and, and I think in a matter of general course, Throughout the land, the law of Moses makes it clear. If you falsely accuse your brother, you are guilty of the thing you accuse them of. You commit somebody of a capital offense, you get put to death. You accuse somebody of something that would bring a fine, you pay that fine. Leviticus 19 is clear on that point. Listen to Leviticus 19. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. You guys remember how... Ahab was able to get that vineyard that he wanted. They found two worthless men who accused Naboth, who owned it, of cursing God. They stoned him and put him to death, and Ahab was able to scoop up his vineyard. So when we're talking about slander, we're not just talking about, like, so-and-so's got stinky feet. We're talking about things that can lead to death. David himself has spent years on the run precisely because people are whispering in Saul's ear, David's out to get you. So I will destroy slanders in the proud. And I think it makes perfect sense if you've been studying the Psalms of David, why he would feel so strongly about slanderers and those who proudly trust in their machinations, their schemes. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a hearty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Okay, so that's how you respond to them. Who, who are you going to like? Who are you going to draw near to? Well... I will look with favor on the faithful in the land. I'll look with favor at the faithful in the land. With two implications. One, that they may dwell with me. And two, that they may minister to me. So let's consider that. Um, David, and a good ruler and a good king, identifies with his people. David is dwelling with these people. He's, he's cutting down, he's cutting off the wicked, the slanderers, the proud. But he is dwelling with and among the faithful in the land. And amazingly, amazingly, this is something our God does as well. Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, considers the, uh, the, the massive condescension 
of God that he might come down in just in the Shekinah glory. Remember, the, the, the Shekinah glory is going to come fill the temple. And Solomon at the prayer of dedication, Second Chronicles 6, says, Praise, now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word be confirmed which you've spoken to your servant David. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. And God, coming symbolically or in the, in the presence of the Shekinah glory, demonstrating his nearness, he is with his people. That was the characteristic mark of the Lord with Israel. Remember when Moses goes up on the mountain, you got to go in our midst, Lord. you got to go in our midst. Otherwise, kill us all now. Mark of a, of a righteous king is even as he opposes the wicked, he identifies, he dwells with his people. How does the book of Revelation end? Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. David's modeling this perfectly. He identifies with, dwells with his people. Um, second, they will be the members of his court. We've, we've heard who's not going to be ministering to him. We've heard who's not going to be part of his retinue. In verse 7, we'll see that no one who practiced deceit shall dwell in his house. But who will minister to him? He who walks in the way that is blameless. And what does that mean? Track it back to verse 2. He who's been pondering on Scripture. The only way you're going to have a blameless walk as if you're meditating on scripture. So those other people who also are, are enthralled by, passionate about God's glory, his justice, who in turn study his word, who in turn walk it out. Those people, David says, they're, they're going to minister to me. They're going to be my advisors. They're going to be my servants. They're going to be the ones who are helping me in my administration. And again, likewise, amazingly, we see that same thing. The risen Christ in Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 says this, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, you could say the one whose way is blameless, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now that is jaw-dropping, because that reference to a rod of iron is a reference to Psalm 2. And what Jesus is saying is as he carries out his future administration over a worldwide global empire, he will, from coast to coast, the kings of the earth are counseled to tremble with joy, to kiss the sun lest he break them in his wrath, that we will be co-regents with him. We will be involved in his administration of that rule. An amazing, jaw-dropping privilege. And David makes it clear, who's going to make up his court, his retinue? Those whose way is blameless. They shall minister to me. They will be, and here's your blank, they will dwell with me. Second, they will be the members of my court. They will be the members of my court. Second Timothy 2.12 also makes this point emphatically. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So that's who David does identify with. And so I'll just pause as it applies to us. Who are your counselors? Who, who do you turn to for help in running your home? Oprah? Dr. Phil? 
I'd encourage you to seek counsel from and help from God's word, from God's people, from your leaders. David's making it clear. My court, my advisors, my ministers are going to be like-minded people who love the Lord God, who study his word and live it out. And I want nothing to do with it. I'm going to keep far from me those voices, no matter how seemingly wise or good they may be, who hate my God and work works of falling away. That, that's the point. And so if you're going to be a righteous ruler, leader, you're going to be surrounding yourself with and relying upon other like-minded people who love the Lord, your God, who dwell on his word and try to live it out. Next, point C, liars and deceivers will have no place in his court. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. That may seem obvious. If you're a king, you don't want people in your house who are lying and practicing deceit. But the difficulty is, what if they're not practicing deceit to you? What if they're practicing deceit because they're just really shrewd, crafty businessmen and they get things done? They bring in revenues, and they close deals, and they generate profits. You know they're shady, but they're shady for you, not against you, and they make you money. David wants nothing to do with them. David will not endure them. They will not be in his house. They will not continue before his eyes. No king wants a liar for the sake of having a liar in his, in his court, Presumably, there's some other offsetting value. And David's point is there is no offsetting value. There's none. If you're a liar, you practice deceit, you utter lies, he's got no place for them in his, in his court, in his kingdom. The Lord Jesus certainly has no place for them. Liars are poured into the lake of fire, the cowards and the faithless. Which means the only question is, will you and I, in our administration of our areas of authority, will we rely upon those who love God, who love his word, or will we turn to others? Finally, morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers in the city of the Lord. Now, that reference to morning by morning, I think, is key. I don't think David has in view here warfare. I don't think David has in view here raiding parties. I think what David has in view here is the courtroom, the courtroom, because what we learn in scripture is what is the time when kings perform judgments, do justice, and hold court? It's in the morning. When Absalom sets up his kangaroo court on the way to David's house, when does he do it? Second Samuel 15, 2, Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate, and when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him. We also learn um, that in Jeremiah 21, 12, uh, let me find that one here. O house of David, thus says the Lord, execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Or Zephaniah 3, 5, Zephaniah 3, 5, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. 
and every dawn does not fail. So I think the picture here is less of, of David going out every morning. First thing I do every morning, I go out in the raiding party and I find the wicked and I cut them down. I think the picture is rather as people come to him with their complaints, people come to him looking for justice, people come to him looking for him to deliver them and, and deal with their, their foes. He is siding with the righteous and cutting down the wicked. He's rendering, here's your blanks, um, I'll destroy the wicked from land. There's no blank there, actually. I will, no, the blank above is point D. I will render righteous judgments. I will render righteous judgments. The judgments he, he gives will be right. It's an abomination to justify the wicked or condemn the righteous. And David is saying, morning by morning, case by case, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. And again, in your home, and again, this can, be, this can be difficult for children, right? For parents of children, because your children come to you to adjudicate numerous legal matters throughout the day. Dad, she took my, I had it first, and all of these are legal complaints. Make no mistake, they're all legal complaints. Every one of them is a cry for justice. And how we handle those, whether we take them seriously, um, or whether we just say, figure it out yourself. I think that was one of David's actually major failings. There are a number of places in his administration where he absolutely failed to get to the bottom of things. When he fled from Absalom, um, Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, crippled son, who David took care on, he, uh, his servant Ziba came out with a cartload of supplies and he told David a story about how Mephibosheth was celebrating, yes, finally, the blood of Saul is coming down to the head of David. And David, in a rash moment, hearing one side of the matter, says, Okay, Ziba, everything Mephibosheth owns is yours. And then David continues on his way out of town. When he comes back in after, putting, um, after the Civil War to reclaim his throne, Mephibosheth is out there weeping for joy at the return of David. And he, he tells David, My servant deceived me and I couldn't stop him because I'm a cripple. And David doesn't get to the bottom of the matter. What David says is, Okay, you guys split your stuff 50-50. That is not a righteous judgment, okay? David's son, Amnon, rapes David's daughter, Tamar, and David does nothing about it. And Absalom waits for a year. Nothing. So Absalom then becomes an avenger of blood, and he assassinates Amnon. And then David does nothing, and Absalom flees. And then Joab tells David, hey, let him come back. And David says, okay, he can come back, but he can't come before me. And again, no justice. Nothing remotely like what the law of Moses prescribes, which would be something like, let's get to the bottom of whether or not Absalom is indeed the avenger of blood or not, whether or not Absalom deserves to die or whether what he's done is righteous or just. There's, there's no justice or judgment. There's just, I don't want to deal with him. I don't want to deal with it. Most of David's major problems come from his failure to deal with justice. Now, I think most of the time he did, but we see starkly the, the failures where he does not render righteous judgments. So be diligent to whatever degree you're a ruler, to whatever degree you have authority, to whatever degree you have a sphere of control, to, to take those matters seriously, morning by morning. I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off evildoers from the city of God, finally. Um, I think David envisions that as justice and righteous judgments are starting in Jerusalem, it will spread out to the land. 
He does envision this going out ripple effect all the way to the land, but I think it's starting in the city of God. It's starting in the city of the Lord in Jerusalem. I'll cut off evildoers from the city. When, when the Lord God shows Ezekiel just how corrupt Israel is, he does it by showing them the corruption in Jerusalem. And again, I already read to you, Peter tells us it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. So as we draw to a close this morning, um, we've got a masterful, wonderful model of a leader's, of a king's resolve. This is what a righteous king should commit to. This is what a righteous ruler should commit to. I pray that that would inform your voting, your affirming of earthly rulers. More to the fact, I pray that that would inform your exercise of earthly rule. Committing yourself first and foremost to your own personal holiness. Um, Committing yourself to who you will and will not rely upon in your administration. Committing yourself to rendering right and righteous judgments. And ultimately, this psalm and its ideal will find its perfect expression in the Lord Jesus Christ reigning on earth with a rod of iron. Um, this, this will. He will destroy his enemies. And so I would just would close by encouraging you to consider when he comes in glory, when he comes in splendor, will you be counted among his enemies? Who he will break with a rod of iron? Where you'll be counted as a faithful in the land. Now, we know there's no amount of doing things that make you righteous, but we know that those who trust in him, who have trusted in him, who follow after him, those are the ones he counts as sons and daughters. Those are the faithful servants, and those are the ones to whom he will say, Well done, my faithful servant. He's going to come, he's going to judge the earth, and he's going to look on favor with some, and he's going to destroy others. And so if the king is coming, and I think the final point of application, we're making sure you, under, you know which side of that matter you are on. And when his justice comes, what side of that you will be on. If you have questions about that, please talk to me or one of the elders. I'd like to close in prayer. Lord God, we just, we live in a world with sinful leaders, broken, failing leaders, we would pray for them. Your word tells us to pray for them. We want to pray for our leaders. Help our leaders to embody this ideal. Help our leaders to first um, concern themselves with personal holiness. That you would help our leaders to um, ponder your word in a way that is blameless. To walk with the integrity of their heart. We pray that you'd give them the courage to uh, do what is right. To punish the evildoer. To reward the righteous. To surround themselves with the righteous counselors. And Lord, we also pray that you would give us the, the courage to do the same. Each of us has areas of, of influence, areas of ministry and control, spheres of responsibility. And so as we administer that, let us follow suit as well. And Lord God, ultimately we look to the, the coming day when the Lord Jesus will come and when his kingdom will be here, when your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we rejoice in the hope of that glorious day. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.